You're not in this story. Yeah, well, we're making it up as we go. Hello and welcome to Making It Up As We Go, a Destiel fan fiction anthology podcast. We're making it up as we go. I'm your host and reader, Nerdy Nerdenstein. The story is ours now. You can't have it back. Please be warned that the stories featured can and will contain explicit sexual content and is not intended for young audiences. Hello. Today I'll be reading And This Your Living Kiss by Opal Bullets. Chapter 5. The rating for this fic is mature. The pertinent tags for this fic include Poetry, Writer Dean Winchester, Professor Castiel, John Winchester's A-plus parenting, Mentions of past prostitution, Mentions of cancer, Angst with a happy ending. Poetry is no place for a heart that's a whore And I'm young and I'm strong But I feel old and tired Over fire And I've been poked and stoked It's all smoke, there's no more fire Only desire For you wherever you are Chapter 5 John Winchester's Waltz. Dean was nervous going back to class on Tuesday. He'd had a lot more fun than he'd been expecting at Missouri, sure. Jody and Donna were both friggin' awesome. He couldn't wait for the burger date he'd set up with the sheriff who insisted she knew where to get the best cheeseburgers in a 100-mile radius. And their foster daughters, and of course patients, all turned out to be funny and interesting young women. Missouri had chosen for her granddaughter well, he thought. But the spanner in the works was Castiel. Missouri hadn't told him that Castiel would be there, though he must have been a regular fixture, because Jody and Donna adored him just like Missouri seemed to. And he could tell that Claire looked up to him in her own prickly way. It was nice seeing Cass in that environment, in nice jeans and his top buttons undone on his shirt in just the way Dean liked. He thought back to how Cass had sat holding his glass of wine and leaning forward toward Claire, a dark curl falling over his forehead, face slightly pink from the alcohol, and discussing Vonnegut and Bradbury in the same breath. Fucking nerdy little dude-flavored catnip is what that man was. And it wasn't fair. He'd had to remind himself over and over that night, and over and over the two days since, of the way he'd ripped apart Dean's paper, Dean was far too low, a bottom-feeding deep-sea fish on Castiel's radar to be noticed by him like that, even if he swung that way. End of. You look constipated, said Kevin when he sat down at his back desk. Dean rolled his eyes. Thanks, he muttered. When Cass arrived, he was wearing a tie, which meant closed shirt buttons, thankfully. And he didn't give Dean any special acknowledgement from seeing each other over the weekend, except for one thing— 
He handed back everyone's papers, and when he set Dean's on his desk, he subtly tapped at the new message written in the corner. It was in bright orange ink, which stood out starkly from the green. If you need help with your revision, my office hours are there for a reason. It's truly not a big deal. And underneath, a scribbled smiley face. Dork. He laughed under his breath and ignored how his heart skipped a beat. Did Cass put a smiley face on everyone's homework? Okay, read the notes later, said Cass, not unkindly. Some of the students grumbled and put their papers away. There were too many overachievers at this school for them not to want to pick apart their grades immediately. We're starting the mid-century unit this week. The middle of the 20th century was every bit as rich and complex as its early days. Many movements grew out of this time period, including the beat generation, formalism, surrealism, confessional, deep image poetry, and many more. This is because we are now concerning ourselves with the generation of men and women who grew up in the Great Depression and lived through World War II. This was truly a great age for the English-language poet. Some came out of the other side of it railing against the establishment, celebrating sexuality and drugs and freedom. Others remained steadfast against McCarthyism and blacklisting. Others defied categorization amid rampant polarization between races and genders that defined, quite especially, the American mid-century. Today I'll be talking about the complex tapestry of not only our country in the time period, but Britain and South Africa in particular as well. Any questions before we dive in? I've got one, announced Kevin. Dean was still sometimes taken aback that students could use that kind of challenging tone something that would get you shot down in high school, and have a college professor accept it with equanimity. Please, said Cass, half sitting on the front of his desk. Where are all my Midwestern poets? Dean couldn't help himself. Right? Ever since Kevin had pointed out to him about the rampant regionalism at the school, he'd begun to notice it everywhere. Without taking his eyes off their professor, Kevin held out a fist, which Dean bumped with enthusiasm. Hmm, said Cass. Where do you hail from, Mr. Tran? Michigan. Well, said their professor, with a growing smile on his lips. Stay tuned for Thursday. I think I can oblige you. For you, you are, are you say my time here has been some sort of joke That I've been messing around some sort of incubating period But when I really come around I'm cracking out And you have no idea No idea how it feels To be on your own In your own home With the fucking phone And the mother of bloom In your bedroom The next class, Castiel handed out a new poetry packet. All right, everyone, he said, causing conversations to peter off and people to settle in their chairs. We're going to begin our mid-century journey by looking at some American poets that typify the period. And Kevin? Castiel paused, zeroing in on Kevin. They're both from Michigan. That's what I'm talking about. Kevin grinned, though per usual he didn't bother with any notes. He leaned back in his chair, crossing his arms and ankles as if to say, 
Let's see what you got. Cass wore a tiny, satisfied smirk as he uncapped a marker for the whiteboard. Remind me, everyone, what are the levels of a poem? First, the class sighed and chanted their way through typographical, sonic, sensory, ideational, and fusional. Good, he said, finishing off the last word with a flourish. Keep this in mind as we read. He turned on the projector and dimmed the lights as the screen lowered. He tapped a couple times on his laptop and his PowerPoint popped up with a short poem of four quatrains. My Papa's Waltz, written by Theodore Rithke in 1942. Why don't you do the honors, Kevin? My Papa's Waltz, he began. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pan slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my waist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt, then waltzed me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. The room fell into the usual thoughtful silence whenever a poem was finished. Cassia let it sit for a few moments. He stood to the side of the projector screen, hands on his hips, and surveyed the students. First impressions. I like it, said Alicia Baines. There's a wild joy to it. How so? Like they're so caught up in dancing that it doesn't matter that they're bumping into things or getting scrapes or bruises. Because they're enjoying the moment and having the moment together. Like, you know, his dad probably works hard. What with his hands being dirty, right? So it's a treat when he comes home and horses around with his kid. Roughhousing, her twin Max supplied. There were murmurs of assent, but Dean was unconvinced. There was that, sure, but... He reread the poem, looking at the words. Whiskey, death, battered, scraped, buckle, beat. Death, though, said Billy. She clearly spotted the same thing. He was dizzy and he hung on like death. His father beat the time on his head. His mother clearly upset. It's a conceit, isn't it? Expand on that, Cass encouraged. The poet is using dance as a conceit. It's a metaphor for his father beating him. Her pronouncement was met with uncomfortable quiet. Dean, thankful to be in the back row, stared at the old wood of his desk and the decades of grooves and scratches. Buckle. His belt. A memory swam to the surface of his mind from underneath layers and layers of time and repeated offenses. A singular moment of his father, drunk, hands holding the sharpness of anger but none of the steadiness of intent, fumbling with his buckle, two tugs, three to whip the belt from its loops. Why would he still cling to his shirt, though? Lydia wondered. Maybe he was a rough man, but I think it's actual dancing. The violent language was for a bad living situation or something. And the debate began. The classroom fell in line, half of them arguing for a dance and the other for abuse. Was the father a terrible evil man? Was Ratke's childhood one of horror and abject misery? Or was it people scraping by the best they could finding fun in all places, even if a few eggs got cracked. The father, a bright light in a bleak world. With every student that spoke, Dean felt swayed one way and then the other. 
then waltzed me off to bed still clinging to your shirt. And like it still happened every night, Dean remembered. How when Sam and Dean were still small, their father tucked them in at night if he was home, giving them each a soft kiss on their foreheads. His hard laborer's hands gentle and comforting. He used to do that. He did. When did it stop? Which job was it when he came home and for the first time gave them nothing more than a squeeze on the shoulder? Dean. Cass's deep voice split neatly through the arguing. Startled, Dean looked up at the professor. You've been quiet. What's your take? He glanced at his classmates and quickly looked away. They were all riled up, half-turned in their desks to face each other, and now looking at him to support their side. But the thing was, he supported both, or neither. Dean cleared his throat and ignored them, narrowing his gaze to Cass. What if... Sometimes it was a dance, and sometimes it wasn't. Like there's love there, but it's buried under all this. He waved his hand, unsure how to say it. How do you even begin to describe a father like that? One who tried and tried and so often failed? April scoffed. She was one of the just-outside-of-Boston girls. It can't be both. You don't beat your kids if you actually love them. Her words stung him with a tangible weight. The initial lash was instinctive, that old mantra. If he really loved me, if I were better, if I were actually worth loving. But what gave her the right? Didn't she know that people were never just one thing, and that his dad had worked himself to the damn bone, to the point where his body just wouldn't work anymore? That his dad beat him once or twice, sure, but then there were times like when Dean had been sick, so sick, but still he'd taken care of Sam and made dinner and put him to bed. There'd been love then. Love in the gentleness of his hands as he rubbed his back. Love in the way he let Dean cry himself out onto his work uniform. Love in the soft kiss pressed onto the top of his head. There'd been love, but he was not about to spend his time thinking about John Winchester. The man was dead and buried. This decided his anger ebbed as soon as it swelled. She was tucking her hair behind her ear, back in the argument with another student, and she looked so, so young, untried, untested by life. She'd clearly never really known someone like his father. He hoped she never would. Instead, he looked at Cass and was surprised to find him looking back instead of following the new debate. His expression was open but complex, something of respect, somewhat calculating. Dean couldn't parse it. He got that feeling of being seen again and set about to doodling something in his notebook that made it look like he was taking notes. God, if that wasn't like old times with Charlie back in high school. Uh, let's pause this discussion for now, the professor finally said. The students subsided. Maybe after we read the second poem, some of you might want to revisit your theories. He tapped a button and a new slide appeared. This next one was written in 1966 by Robert Hayden. Those Winter Sundays. I'll read it this time. I want you to really listen. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put on his clothes in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking... 
When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Dean was overwhelmed. No other word. Overwhelmed. With guilt. With shame. He let the arguments wash over him this time. The recriminations about ungrateful children. The comparisons of different perceived behaviors of the fathers in the two poems. The nuance. All nuance lost. When Castiel told them to pair off and discuss further, Dean turned toward Kevin more out of habit than anything. Well, my dad died when I was a kid, said Kevin, no preamble. You? Uh, dead too, a couple years ago. Fantastic. You want to talk about the sonic qualities instead? God, yes. As soon as Cass started his closing remarks, Dean stuffed his things into his bag. He sat on the edge of his seat until Cass dismissed them. Something about a response paper. Dean wasn't really paying attention. And made sure he was first out of the room. A couple of other classes were being released in the building at the same time. But with his bulk, he easily made a way for himself down the stairs and out the door. He climbed the damn hill with a vengeance relishing the burn that still pulsed in his legs at the effort, and practically flew down the other side in the cool autumn air. He made short work of the green in the rest of campus, and soon enough Dean was slamming Baby's door shut and peeling out of the parking lot. It wasn't until he was alone on the county road, halfway between Maple Hills and home, when the tears got so bad that he started choking on them. Only then did Dean realize he was crying, he swerved to the road's edge, gritting his teeth through the rumble strip, and roughly turned off the car. Baby's engine cut off with a wheeze. The sobs were loud now, in his ears, and suddenly even the car was too much. The car John Winchester had bought and driven most of his life. Dean stumbled out on the empty road and clutched his hands to his head, digging his fingers into his scalp, squeezing his eyes shut. No other sound could be heard but the light swaying of the trees. He hadn't seen anyone else for ten miles. Another sob ripped its way out of his throat, despite his desperately trying to swallow it down. He turned and slammed his elbows onto the roof of the car, burying his face in his hands. John Winchester is dead, he told himself, studiously ignoring how wrecked his voice sounded. He's dead. He's at peace. I'm at... I'm fine. Quiet lingered. A bird chirped in the distance. The westering sun was just strong enough to fall like a warm caress on his left side. Dean inhaled. Exhaled. He pushed himself upright, 
I'm just fucking fine. He punctuated the words with his fists, pummeling the roof of his car. His hands stung, but it was a good sting. It felt fucking great. He was going to take a goddamn crowbar to this car, and it was going to feel absolutely incredible. He ripped the driver's door back open and snatched the keys from the ignition, reached the Impala's trunk in quick, long strides, and shoved the key in to unlock it. It wouldn't budge. Come on, you piece of shit! Dean tried turning it again until he realized he was using Sam's house key. He ripped it out and fumbled with his key ring, trying to shove them in one by one, not even caring, and when none of them were going in quite right, he started over. His father tugging his belt from the loops once, twice so angry his hands could barely function. And Dean whirled around and threw the keys straight into the woods. Fuck! He screamed, then crumpled onto the trunk. He didn't know how long he sat there, shoulders hunched and hands pressing hard into cool metal, edge of the car digging into his ass. His anger subsided into a simmer, no longer a boiling rage, but still there, deep under the surface. Had it always been there? Shame crept in, pressing against his chest and releasing his muscles from all the tension, instead wrapping them in a heavy weight. In front of him, his shadow grew long and longer. Dean should never have fucking come here. Kansas had been fine, just fine. He wanted to feel something so bad. Well, he should have been more careful what he wished for because now he was really fucking feeling. He began to shiver. A hawk flew overhead. At length, Dean became aware of a rustling in the underbrush on the other side of the road. He held his breath as he caught movement a figure among the red and orange trees. He couldn't tell what it was between the shadows. An old nightmare came back to him, more flotsam and jetsam floating to the surface of his mind now the floodgates were open. A monster chasing him through the woods, chasing him. The figure moved closer, walked toward the edge of the road where the trees began to thin, and... It was a deer. A doe, in fact. She snuffled through the grasses that grew in the gravel, then lightly stepped onto the asphalt. Dean stayed frozen. The deer didn't bound across as they sometimes did at dusk, making Dean slam on the brakes and reach an arm out to brace Sammy in case of impact whether he was sitting there or not. She just walked, sniffing the ground until she paused, straddling the dashed yellow line. She looked down the road to the east. Then the doe turned her delicate head to the west, toward Dean. Even his shivering stilled under her gaze. He knew deer were just dumb animals, but there was an undeniably natural wisdom in her look that considered him, and in the end was unafraid. They shared an endless moment, sweet and stretched like taffy, until she huffed out a breath and headed on toward the woods. Her hooves made dull clops in the old asphalt, and the gravel crunched when she reached the other side. Dean watched the doe as she slipped back into the trees, glimpses of tan hide and white tail between rough bark and turning leaf. Then she was gone. Dean's phone vibrated in his jacket pocket, startling him. He pulled it out. Sam's name was splashed across the screen. Dean cleared his throat and wiped his nose before hitting accept. Yeah. You're usually home by now. Class go okay? 
Going to be home in time for dinner? No. Jack, Jack, put that down. Dean could hear Jack saying something in the background. You're right. Put that down, please. Thank you. Dean? Dinner? Yeah, uh, give me 20 minutes. Okay. Drive safe, jerk. Bitch. He hung up and patted his pockets for his keys. Shit, he muttered. After a couple minutes of searching through the underbrush near the road, deer nowhere to be seen, he found his keys. Thankfully, they'd hit a tree not too far in. He trudged back to his car and sighed, pausing to rest his hand on the hood halfway around. Sorry, baby, he said. The rest of the drive back to Sam and Eileen's was quiet. The radio was on, but so low that Dean didn't register it much beyond his loud thoughts. He felt himself in the eye of a dark storm, so many memories vying for attention that he had to carve himself out a space of blankness just so he wouldn't crash the car. It was nice having something to do with his hands, though he was usually a more relaxed driver and conscientiously signaled when appropriate looked twice before turning or changing lanes. The fine tremor in his fingers was lessened that way, was something important to concentrate on. Each day was getting shorter as autumn limped ahead, and a low sun was settling close to the horizon by the time he reached the neighborhood. Someone was walking their dog, but otherwise everyone was inside. House lights already turned on. Cars parked in driveways and along the curb. Home for dinner and family. He supposed that's what he was there for as well, but Sam and Eileen led their own lives. Dean was only ever a visitor to their house, to this type of life. That had always been the case, at least since his mom died. Their little house, snug between its neighbors, maybe needed a bit of care. Sam and Eileen were both very busy and with a small child to boot. But with the shades yet to be drawn over the front windows, Dean could see his enormous little brother chasing Jack around the living room and all the love and happiness it entailed. It was a good house, a good home. Sam had grown and built himself something and found a good partner to build it with. That pane of glass between them may as well have been a brick wall for all Dean felt he'd taken a wrong turn somewhere, been left behind. Still mired in old ways, old thoughts, old fears. He sighed and trudged up the front steps to find the door unlocked. Before now, Dean could never have imagined him or Sam being able to live in a place where it was safe enough to keep the door unlocked. Dean! shouted Jack and ran up to hug his leg. He reached down and ruffled Jack's hair. Hey, buddy. He stood back up. Sam? His brother narrowed his eyes. Dean figured he must look as worn out and on edge as he feels. Jack, go tell your mother that Dean's home, he said. He waited until Jack ran off to do his bid before he asked, How was class? Not now, Sammy, Dean said. 
Sam took a breath in, but after a moment of thought, only let air back out. Dean knew he wasn't giving up, but maybe for once, Dean didn't want him to. Lasagna's been resting. It's probably ready to cut now. What, you actually made lasagna? Hell no, it's Stouffer's. Sam led the way into the kitchen. Dean snorted. Good enough for me. The kitchen was noticeably warmer from the oven, and it was filled with the rich smell of meat, tomatoes, and cheese. Sam opened the cupboard to get plates. I miss Karen's lasagna, he said. You know how to make it, right? It's been years, said Dean. When Karen wasn't feeling well enough to cook, but at least well enough to sit at the kitchen table and drink some tea, she would direct Dean around the kitchen while Sam did his homework and Bobby was finishing up in the office. It seemed so long ago, like a deep, wide gulf had opened up between then and now. The intervening years were blank and empty in comparison. A doldrums that could have lasted four years, or forty. Don't even know when I last made it. He rummaged through the silverware drawer for forks and knives, picking out a little fork for Jack that had frogs on the handle. You should call her later, said Sam. Get the recipe. Maybe we can make it this weekend. Call Karen? He hadn't called her or Bobby in an embarrassingly long time. He could imagine it now. Hey, sorry I blew you off and didn't pick up the phone the last few times you tried calling, but can I have a recipe? Thankfully, he was saved from replying by Eileen entering the kitchen, and then there was a kid to strap into a booster seat and paper towels to hand out and dinner to eat. The conversation at the table stuck to lighter topics. Funny things at the office or listening to Jack describe in detail all the games he'd played at daycare that day. When they were done eating, Dean waved his brother and sister off, taking on the cleaning himself. Sam let this slide, too, and Dean was glad of it. Very thoroughly and listened to the three of them playing around in the other room. When he was done washing dishes, he cleaned the table and the counter, and then swept the kitchen floor for good measure. Then he grabbed a bottle of scotch and went to sit on the patio. Sam and Eileen's front yard was modest, but they had a decent-sized yard in the back. Their patio was big enough to hold a large round table with six chairs, the kind of table with an umbrella attached to it so you could have shade in the summer. To the left was a small garden lined with gray stones looking a little overrun. Another one of those projects overachievers like Sam and Eileen started with good intentions but had trouble keeping up with. There was a crab-apple tree taking up a good portion of the right side of the yard, and in the middle of the open space was a fire pit. No fence shut in the property, but there was a tree line on the far side separating their backyard from the backyards of the houses the next street over. The sun was mostly set now, and the evening just cool enough to discourage mosquitoes. Dean kicked back one of the chairs and slumped down. He poured a generous amount of scotch into a tumbler and nursed it, watching the fireflies flicker in and out like sparks. Dean was on his second glass when Eileen stepped outside with Jack in her arms. Say goodnight to your uncle. Jack wore the pout of a child who was tired and in denial about it but the argument must have already been fought and lost because he just reached for Dean. Hug. The unstudied gesture, the honest sweetness of it, hit Dean like a thorn in the heart. He set down his glass and allowed Eileen to hand the kid over. Jack squeezed his arms around Dean's neck, but Dean was gentle, so gentle in the way he held him close. 
In this moment, he was so incredibly aware of how precious this child was. He hadn't felt like this since Sam was a kid. Those moments when you understood that you would die for someone if the need arose, and walk willingly into that death without regret. Not a morbid thought, just a simple truth. And if death was easy, what else wouldn't be worth the sacrifice for him? When Eileen scooped Jack back up, Dean could see the same thing in every line of her body, in the curve of her arms keeping him safe, in the soft smile resting in the corner of her mouth, the happy kiss she dropped on the crown of his head, because why not? Why would she think twice at showing her son affection, at expressing her love for him? Had John Winchester ever felt that way about his sons? After they went back inside, Dean tensed, jiggling his knee. As expected, it wasn't long before Sam came out to join him, sliding the back door shut with a decisive snick. He pulled out the chair next to Dean's, the metal scraping against the cement. Only when he reached for the liquor did Dean look up and realize that Sam had brought his own tumbler along. Eileen must have told him he was drinking. The brothers sat for a few minutes. It was nice, the dread of the upcoming discussion notwithstanding. Dean missed those quiet moments with Sam driving around the country, stopping in the middle of a field at night, crickets chirping, and stars glittering like a sea of diamonds overhead, and no words between them, only a six-pack of beer bought at the last gas station. Fireflies and scotch weren't a poor substitute, Dean decided, but it might have to wait for another night. He sighed and broke the silence. You ever take lit classes in college? Sam cleared his throat and shifted in his chair. A few, he said. Ever read Retke? Sam shrugged and shook his head. Dean slid his phone out of his pocket and a quick Google landed him on my papa's waltz easily enough. He handed the phone over for Sam to read. Dean watched him carefully, but his face was neutral only the slight movement of his eyes crossing back and forth over the lines. When Sam finished, he tossed the phone at Dean and took a swig of his whiskey. Sounds like Dad. Just as likely to laugh and tell stories when he drank as he was to yell you out of the room. Dean couldn't help a rueful smile. Trust Sammy to get to the heart of the matter in a split second when it took the class 15 minutes. He brought up Hayden's poem and shoved that under Sam's nose, too. Gamely, Sam set down his glass and took back the phone. This one Sam read twice, a frown pulling at his mouth. Tough class today, he said at length, putting the phone on the table between them. Dean shrugged and watched the screen go black, obliterating the words. Those kids. He took a drink and started over. Most of them were convinced that one father was good and the other evil. Or that Retke's dad was overall shitty and that any fondness that came through for him in the poem was fucked up. Like he got Stockholm Syndrome from his own dad. Or with Hayden, like, he was totally ungrateful for all the work his dad did. And they just skipped over the chronic anger, like in this case it was excusable. Like there's some kind of line a father has to cross before you're allowed to hate him. Or fear him. But that also means you can't... Can't love him. Dean dropped an elbow on the table and rubbed his forehead. Talking about it like any nice thing you feel for him is a lie. 
like you're some sad little victim whose mind is so twisted you can't even trust your own damned feelings. They were so fucking judgmental, and you could just tell from the way they talked about it they never had to... He screwed up his courage and looked over at Sam. His mouth was pressed in a thin line, and his eyes were watering just enough to catch the low light and hold it. I get it. Do you? Dean barked a laugh. At least you fucking stood up for yourself. Dean. At least you talked back to him. I was just, yes sir, no sir, right to the end. I wish you'd left him. And then what? Dean hissed. What kind of son would I be if I'd left him? He couldn't take care of himself. Was he just supposed to wake up in his own piss? Was he supposed to crawl across the house every time he needed to eat? What? He worked his fucking ass off in the shittiest jobs known to man all his life for us and never heard a damn word of thanks for it and I should have said sayonara, see you later when he needed me the most? Did he ever thank you? Sam crossed his arms and leaned back in his chair. What? You're so worried about whether either of us ever thanked him. And sure, maybe we should have said it once in a while, but did he ever say it to you? Of course not, Dean muttered, but that's different. Is it? Sam shook his head and looked out on the fireflies. Love's austere and lonely offices? That could be a father taking care of his son. Could also be a son taking care of his father. I didn't do it for thanks. Maybe he didn't either. That's not the point. Then what is the point, Dean? I used to tell myself when I stopped. Dean took a harsh breath and dug a hand into his leg, the other tightening around his glass. When I went to live with Dad, that was a choice, Sam. Not like I didn't know how he'd be. Not like I wasn't going to miss you and Bobby and Karen. It was my choice. Just the reasons I used to lie to myself about. Like what? Sam asked softly. Like I was doing it out of duty, because Bobby and Karen had done it before, but they had each other to worry about? Couldn't be them. You had your whole future ahead of you. Couldn't be you. Had to be me, right? No, it didn't. Just listen. Sam curled his fist on the table, but nodded for Dean to continue. I thought to myself, I have to do it because I owe him. Or because he'd be just pathetic on his own. Or that nasty thing he just said, he didn't mean it, no hurt feelings. Or if you weren't such a whiny bitch, this wouldn't be so hard. This shit is easy as pie. Or what would other people think of our family if no one stepped up to the plate? But you know, he said with a bitter laugh, I wouldn't wish having lived with him those last years on you or anybody. The idea of owing him, that guy? We pulled our fucking weight. Damn right. Sam murmured. He definitely meant some of the shit he said. And I might be a little bitch, but I am long, long since past caring what other people think of me. Or I thought I was. Because... He drained his glass, poured himself a third. I haven't thought about him in a long time. He died, and I thought, well, that's over then. But I'm thinking of him now, and you know what I remember? Not all the shit he said. Because those days where he was mean were a dime a fucking dozen. Not that time he left me behind at that boy's home as a punishment for stealing food. 
even though the moment I realized he wasn't coming for me was one of the worst moments of my fucking life. Not the couple of times he raised a hand to me. Kids out there get beat a lot more than that. What's the big deal? It is the big deal, Dean, Sam burst out. He crossed the line long before he ever hit you. He crossed the line when he left us alone so long we had to steal to eat. Though I wish I'd stolen a lot more because he definitely crossed the line as soon as you prostituted yourself to fucking feed us. Dean's breath stopped in his throat. How? Oh, I didn't realize it at the time, Sam spat. But do you really think I don't read your fucking poetry? He honestly hadn't, no. Skimmed it, maybe. Well, I... It, it's boring and... And nothing. It's good, Dean. But I can barely stand it because I get so damn angry. I read the poems over and over and over again, and each time hoping I misread it, and that I'll see something different, but it's always the same. I wanted him to rot in hell for the shit he did to us. But especially the shit he did to you. Why do you think I never wanted to visit him? You get it, don't you? Poems like The Hunt where you're chasing after monsters and going up against demons. That's just you projecting shit, right? Those monsters and demons are dad. Am I wrong? Don't psychoanalyze me. Sam took it as his inability to deny, which of course it was. And dad, as you described him in those, like some kind of superhero. That was just wishful thinking. No, Dean cut him off. No, it wasn't. Then what? It was still dad. Dean smiled, ignored the tear that at long last broke free. That's what I was trying to tell you. When I think of him, none of that stuff is what I think first. There was this one time, I must have been 12 or 13. He was working night shifts as a security guard at some warehouse in uh, Ohio or something. So he's asleep by the time we wake up for school, and I wake up one morning really sick. Bad headache, bad cough, can't breathe through my nose. But still, I get up, get you to school. I go to school, too, because I couldn't quite fake Dad's voice yet. And I sure wasn't going to wake him by asking him to call out, or the school calling him to see where I was, right? And I make it through the day, and I pick you up. You do your homework, and I make you dinner, and I bundle you off to bed. But I'm fucking miserable. Can't sleep, but can't do anything else just lying on the couch with the TV on but not watching it. Shivering. Can barely lift my head. Then Dad comes home. Must have been four or five in the morning. I can hear him opening and locking the door, throwing his keys on the table, and I'm, I'm kind of scared, you know? Is he going to be mad that I'm not in bed? But he walks in and I see him and I'm just, I'm so relieved that he's home I start crying. He's crying in earnest now, overwhelmed by the memory unburied, awoken and alive. I can't help it. But he doesn't tell me to shut up. Doesn't tell me to act more like a man. Doesn't yell at me or force me to go upstairs. Doesn't say how he's too tired to deal with my shit. What did he say then? Nothing. Dean laughed a little. Nothing at all. He just comes over the couch and helps me sit up. He's real gentle about it. Then he sits on the couch himself and pulls me into his lap. 
I can't remember the last time he did that, but I don't question it. His jacket is unzipped, so he tucks it around me and his arms, too. He smells like leather and aftershave and a little sweat, but he's really warm. I stop shivering. He changes the channel and he's laughing at some morning show and I just feel so... Dean swallows. Safe. Then what? Asks Sam, barely even a whisper. Dean shrugged. I fall asleep. Wake up in my bed later. Dad had seen you off to school and called me in sick and everything. They sit in silence for a few minutes. Dean takes another slug of whiskey and there's no burn anymore. Just smoothness, earthiness. He wipes away the tears. So, yeah, I still love him. Boy, do I hate him for some of the shit he did, but it doesn't matter. I took care of him because I love him, and I guess that makes me weak. Because he abused us, and that's the bottom line, right? And so my love for him doesn't matter. Or it means that I'm sick. I can't. I can't feel sorry for him that he got dealt such a shitty hand. I'm not supposed to worry about him because he's an asshole. I'm supposed to denounce him and feed him to the dogs and pretend he doesn't mean anything to me. I'm still some fucked up little kid that doesn't know any better than to love his own damn father. Loving him doesn't make you weak, Dean. Said Sam, sighing. Or if it does, then I'm weak too. Yeah, right. You just said you hope he's rotten in hell. No, I said I wanted him to rot in hell. Wanted. So? Purgatory might be good. You know, just enough so he understands what he did. Sam gave him a wobbly smile through his tears, up but shuddering back down again. Then, yeah, I think he should have some peace. The admission was surprising enough that Dean's tears petered out. I don't know. Thought you still hated him. Really? You think it was all crocodile tears when he died? You think that of me? Dean watched his little brother. His patented, kicked puppy look melting into defeat. God, how was that even worse than the puppy look? Of course not, he said. He thought back to their father's last breath and to the funeral itself. No, I never thought that. Sam relaxed, even looked a little relieved. Eileen's been through a lot too, you know. She was at this orphanage in Ireland for years. They were the worst kind of religious zealots, and, and I'd already been with her for a while, and it made us realize we had a lot to straighten out within ourselves if we wanted to be good for each other. If we ever wanted to be able to be good for each other. So maybe that helped. But, uh, when you knew it was close to the end and you called me, and I walked into that hospital, I had all these things I wanted to say to him. All of these really well-thought-out lawyerly answers to any argument or accusation he'd laid against me. I wanted to rip him a new one for all the things I'd found out from your poetry, too. He never knew about me going out and... He never knew. Dean interjected. Defending John Winchester was something his brother often gave him grief for growing up. Dean didn't want to derail the conversation, but it was very important to him that Sam understood this. 
I never let him. And he definitely never knew about Jack Allen, so... Figured not. Sam shrugged. Moot point. I saw him and all that flew out the window. He was just kind of softer than I remembered him. Tempered by this pain in a different way from all the stuff with Mom dying. Sam stared into his glass, mostly empty. He looked so happy to see me, but really sad, too. Like he had at least an inkling that some of it was his fault. And I just... I wanted him to talk to me about how he met Mom, or about Grandma Millie. He even talked some about Vietnam, and he never talked to us about that. And he had that soccer trophy I'd won in sixth grade. It was weird that you put it there, but he asked for it. For the first time that night, Sam looked truly flummoxed. What? Yeah. When he realized it was going to be a long-term stay, he asked for a few things from home. That was one of them. Took me half a day to find it and all that junk he kept in the basement. Sam ducked his head and shook with a silent sob. After composing himself, he continued. He brought it up. He pointed it out and recounted the entire play for the goal I scored that game. Couldn't believe he remembered it. I mean, it was one of the only games he ever made it to, but still. And he asked about me. When I told him about Eileen, he wanted to know all about her, too. Wanted to meet her. I'd sent you off to keep her company, remember? I didn't want her in the room if he was going to let me have it. He liked Eileen. Right? said Sam, brightening. He caught on right away, too, when I had to interpret a lot because his mouth wasn't always moving well enough for Eileen to read his lips. He would still look at her and talk to her, instead of talking through me like she wasn't there. He was really good to her, and that was... He choked up again. Actually wanting to know her and getting to know her, even if it was only for a few days, was the greatest thing he ever did for me. Dean clapped his shoulder and squeezed. He waited until Sam's sniffles died down before pulling back. He poured them each another finger. Sam took a fortifying gulp and ran a hand through his hair. Loving Dad doesn't make me weak or stupid. Doesn't mean we're wrong, either. Dean snorted. If you'd heard them. What do they know, Dean? What do they know? Sam kicked his foot, demanding acknowledgement for his wit. Dean kicked back. I can honestly guarantee you Eileen and I spent a lot of time tearing our hair out about this before we adopted. Pretty sure there's a clause against that in the million-dollar insurance L'Oreal took out on it. Shut up, Sam said easily. I'm serious. Don't you think we were scared shitless to do even a tenth of the damage to Jack that was done to us? Hell, I'm still scared shitless. You guys are awesome parents. Sam scoffed and glared at the garden. Sam, hey, look at me. Sam waited for a few more defiant seconds before turning and staring Dean in the eye, as if waiting to be judged. If you were doing something wrong, I wouldn't stay quiet about it. Not about this. You gotta trust me. I know. Sam sighed. I'm counting on it. Sometimes I just worry that I'm too much like Dad. 
I know I've got his temper and I'll be angry and say something and later when I think back on it I realize what I said was verbatim John Winchester. And then when I try to find examples from my childhood, times when I felt loved and taken care of and safe, examples I can follow when I feel lost with Jack, it's not him I look to. Who then? You know, Sam said quietly. Of course you do. You're the one that raised me. Sam. Cooking for him, reading to him, changing him, bathing him, listening to his stories. Everything I do for him. It was never Dad that did that. It was you. Dean had nothing to say to that. He was crying again. They both were. How could he deny it? Sam swallowed and took a big breath. I hate Dad, he spat. He neglected us and abused us and he sucked the life out of you like a goddamn vampire. But I love him. Because he did love me and he loved Eileen and he gave us the singers who gave us the Turners and Charlie and Missouri. But mostly I love him because he gave me the best big brother I could ever fucking ask for. A toast, he said, voice regaining its strength. Dean nodded, wiped the last stray tear from his face. To John Winchester, he said, raising his glass. And they drank to all the man was and all he could have been. Neither of them poured anything more from the bottle. The air grew chilly. Sam yawned. Without having to speak, they slowly stood, gathering their glasses and heading in. Hey, Dean, said Sam. Yeah. Thank you. That night, despite the day's roller coaster and a good amount of liquor, Dean floated only on the edge of sleep. There was an urge in him deep down and growing stronger the longer he laid there. He couldn't recognize it at first. He was tired and that was familiar. He'd spoken with Sam and that had been enough for some measure of calm. His brain rode lazy circles around it until the need became so great it was physical a warning in his gut, like something was waiting for him, and if he didn't find it now, it might be lost forever. It wasn't until he sat up in consternation, eyes falling on the box in the corner of his room, that he understood. It had just been so long. He flipped his blankets over and off, lightly set his feet to the floor. After another moment, he finally stood up and walked over to the box. It was beat-up cardboard, dirty, with flaps hanging open. It was full of books, at least on top. He'd already rummaged through it in the couple of months he'd been here, especially for his Ginsburg, his Tolkien, his mother's on the road. The rest he took out now and sat down in precarious towers around the box. 
hardcover poetry anthologies from Missouri, expensive special edition box sets from Charlie, pass-it-on library paperbacks so cracked and worn the spines were illegible. Beneath all those were notebooks, gifted moleskins, black and smooth, cheap grocery store spirals in primary colors, ripped and scribbled and smudged, one of them half-empty, it was a blue spiral college-ruled, less ironic now, the metal partially unscrewed from the edge. A few pencils were rolling about the bottom of the box, so he grabbed one of those, too. Dean took his spoils back to the bed and sat with his legs folded. He tucked the pencil in the corner of his mouth and flipped through to the middle, where his very last poem was written. The graphite had spread like a layer of fog over it, and it was fitting— as he had scribbled a simple title for it, The Darkness. He shuddered, turned the page. This one was perfectly pristine, bright white and fine blue lines, a slash of red on either side. He plucked the pencil from his mouth and paused. Backtracking, he hooked the clip on his bottom teeth and pulled. The click it made was loud in the silence of the room. Another memory surfaced, a small one, of sitting next to Charlie and doing homework, pulling his pencil's clip on his teeth repeatedly until she snapped. Gross, dude, she'd said. Dean laughed quietly, hanging his head. Old habits. He pressed the tip of the pencil to paper. He held his breath. So. He paused. So. It's safe to say he was monolithic. A Midwestern man, nom-vet, and no nurturer. I openly admit it. Dean stared at the words, a wobbly sapling of a beginning. They were small and pathetic on the page, and shit, even his handwriting looked awful from lack of use. Who the hell did he think he was, writing down this poor verse like an angsty teenage girl? Who the hell? Ginsburg's drafts. Lines crossed out and adjustments chicken-scratched in the margins and phrases reworked and reworked and worked over again. Castiel's comments in brightly colored ink, his hand covering Dean's paper so he would look at him from across the table. It's a first draft, Dean. Not the end of the world. Okay, then. He could do this. One word at a time. Dean put the pencil back to the page, and he answered the call. Poetry is no place for a heart that's a whore. And I'm young and I'm strong, but I feel old and tired. Over fire. I've been poked and stoked It's all smoke, there's no more fire Only desire For you ever you are For you ever you are Oh, you say my time here Has been some sort of joke That I've been messing around Some sort of incubating
those guys with guitars I've been watching in bars Who've been stamping their feet To a different beat To a different Thank you so much for your support. I can be contacted on Twitter, Tumblr, or at makingitupaswegopod at gmail.com. If you are able, please go to the author's AO3 story and give comments and kudos to them for sharing this with us. The link is in the show notes. This will also be posted on AO3 as a podfic under my username, and the link will be in the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much for listening.